got in the car this morning and uh, Tinley was a little worried about the weather. And I said, darling, I said, we watched the weather this morning and the storms have already passed by. And uh, Marley says, we need to sing that song today when the storms pass by. I just laughed. Um, but I'm glad the storms have passed by. However, if you did watch the news, obviously over in Pike County, uh, they've had some pretty bad storm damage already over there. So let's keep them in our prayers and everyone eastward of us as they're still dealing with the possible storms. Does not look like it's uh, letting up as it travels east necessarily. So uh, we'll keep them in our prayers. Anybody else or any other prayer requests or announcements this morning before we dive into the study? All right, let's start off with a word of prayer. Bow with me, please. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for another day that we can wake up and we can gather together as our church family, especially during this time of Bible study and open up your word and study from it and explore the, the concept of spiritual warfare, especially as we look at your adversary and our adversary, Satan. And we ask that you be with us throughout this study. May we find something from your word to, to encourage us and to help strengthen us and help us to be more equipped as we deal with Satan and all of his schemes. God, we ask you to be with those that are around us as they continue to, to deal with various uh, problems or tribulations and trials. We ask that you especially be with those dealing with the storm damage today and be with those of the storms as, that are still looking at the storms coming in their areas and give them the strength and the ability to be able to withstand anything that comes their way from those storms so that they will be uh, safe and they'll be able to uh, continue doing all that they do. We ask that you be with those that may be injured or have lost things already, that you uh, help us to reach out to them or help your church to, to be your hands and your feet as we Minister to any of those that have lost things, that we may encourage them to be thankful for the things that we have. God, it's times like this when we see storms around us that we can take joy in knowing who you are and what you've done for us. God, we're thankful for the church here at Dalreda. We ask that you continue to be with us as we uh, struggle to do what's best and to make good decisions to, our, to reach out to our community. And as we uh, do our best to teach and preach your gospel to those who are part of the saving uh, the lost world so that they may be saved, that they may see who you are and the sacrifice that you've given uh, so that we can be reunited together. God, we ask you to be with us, especially during this month, as our focus is on reaching out to those who may have fallen away. And we ask that you help us to have the courage and have the strength to be able to reach out to some of those who may have wandered away from being faithful and being part of your faithful family. And we ask that you help us to encourage them in any way we can to not only become faithful, but become active and to regain and, and uh, rededicate their lives. We thank you most of all for Jesus, and it's through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. You know, Satan's got so many different names. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, you'll see several different things there that he is called. Um, you see him, of course, called Satan. Job chapter 1, verse 6. Different versions have different names sometimes. As you see Satan or the devil interchange, the devil, of course, is used in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and following there, the temptation of Christ. and He's called Beelzebub, uh, which is a reference to 
some modern-day idolatry, a name that they would be uh, somewhat familiar with. He's called the tempter, the accuser. Uh, He is called um, the angel of the abyss in Revelation chapter 9. He's called the ruler of this world in John chapter 14. And he's called the father of lies in John 8. Uh, He's called a disguised angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, called a roaring, devouring lion in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. You know, all those terms kind of resonate with us as you describe uh, this spiritual being who makes it his one, his first, and his foremost goal is to attack God and all those who try to join themselves with God. And that's what we're studying in this, uh, this lesson right now is, is looking at um, the one who we are fighting against, and uh, titled the lesson, of course, the um, um, well, yeah, the enemy of the camp. I was, I was thinking of the next lesson, but enemy of the camp is the, the the concept that we're looking at here as we think about Satan and we think about all the things that he does. And the point of looking at Satan is to try and understand a little bit better what his plan and strategy might be. If you are planning for any type of battle you read any kind of a warfare type um, books that talk about planning for battles, you, you see the strategy on the front end actually is the key to success in the back end. And so the idea for us as Christians as we are fighting in this spiritual war, knowing who our enemy is is going to be much more incredibly important. And we're going to hopefully have a greater understanding of kind of what we're up against and maybe how we can contravene and go against what he strategizes to do. Now, it's not always that easy and that simple, of course, we know. Uh, many of us fall prey to uh, his schemes or his, his wiles on a daily basis sometimes. But the concept of sin is something that Satan is, is pushing, he's promoting, he is encouraging. And we've got to understand that in our spiritual lives in order to try and combat against it and to try and understand it. So last, last lesson, I guess it was two weeks ago now, that we left off with, and I appreciate uh, Brother Doug speaking last week for me uh, as I was chaperoning the youth trip to Freed Hardeman. That was an experience, Um, but it was fun. I haven't done that in many years, Uh, but uh, enjoyed the time with the the youth group from uh, Dalreda and Wetumpka. But uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we left off here with this point here dealing with where did Satan come from? And we kind of looked at it primarily. There's really two, two options here. If I go back to the previous screen, you'll see the the two explanations, really. One is that he has just always been around, like God. He's just always existed. He is eternal, is the term that you would say uh, with regard to him. And describing who God is, God is eternal. There's no beginning, there's no end with God. Uh, God has always been, and he always will be. And so the first option of where did Satan come from uh, would be that he's just like God. He's always been here. Well, you got some problems with that. We're going to talk about that in just a second as we dive into that concept of being eternal, just like God. Or the other option, of course, is that he's not eternal. And if you're not eternal, you've got some beginning. And so that means that at some point that Satan was created, and so God created Satan, and at some point along the way of that creation, or after he was created, he made that choice. And we would say that he fell from heaven is the phrase that sometimes you hear. Uh, But the, the idea that he was created as part of the heavenly host... 
And because of the decisions that Satan made, that he in turn left that state of being unified with God, turned his back on God and fell from heaven, so to speak, fell from being a part of God and his creatures, uh, his creation that serves him and honors him and worships him, and instead really just went the exact opposite way. He decided that he knew better and that uh, instead of obeying and worshiping and honoring and loving God, it's just the exact opposite. He's going to blaspheme God. He's going to disobey God. He's going to uh, speak against God. He's going to do everything he can to destroy what God wants done in his life or in anybody's life. And so those are the two real options that you have with regard to um, Satan and his origin. And so we began talking about that. I think when the bell rang, we kind of looked at some of these, these scriptures, and I can't remember exactly where we were, and I didn't go back and listen to it, but I think for sakes of uh, just discussion and jumping back off, I just want to kind of review these, these things again. But where did Satan come from? The first answer would be that he is a created being. And the reason we know that is when you start looking at the scriptures, you see that God is all alone when it comes to being deity. And if you were to argue and if you were to say that Satan was in fact eternal, was just like God, you in fact are equating him with deity. In fact, making Satan equal to God. There's a lot of problems with that. Uh, one, there's no scriptural evidence whatsoever to prove or to show that in fact Satan was uh, around, you know, has always been around and was never created. Uh, and so... You know, some people look at this, though, and, and it, it causes some perplexion and concern, consternation, if you would, the fact that God would create Satan. And so that obviously, you know, creates a, a conundrum in a lot of people's minds thinking that God created Satan. If God knows everything, then why would he create a being like Satan? And so a lot of people struggle with that, and they, they deal with the kind of a dualism kind of um, mindset where you have Satan and God always dueling for mankind. And so they are somewhat equivalent with regard to power and existence. And that's what people try to promulgate and try to teach. Uh, well, there's no scriptural basis for that. And again, um, when you look at that argument, if you were to argue that Satan was in fact eternal like God, arguing this equality really becomes a problem especially when you look at the scriptural evidence that would really counter such an argument. That's where it gets into the problems. In fact, the scripture presents um, multiple times, multiple pieces of evidence to show that Satan is not equal with God. So therefore, they're not on that same plane. They are not part of uh, uh, both being deity. They are not both eternal. Uh, God, who has no beginning and has no end, is not equivalent to Satan. Because when you look at the scriptural evidence, it indicates there that God is the almighty creator, that in fact God created everything both on heavens and the earth. And so the argument uh, is really kind of put to rest with regard to him being an eternal uh, being. So in fact, the, the scriptures kind of argue against it. Again, what we, we talked about in Colossians chapter 1, I, don't, I think we may have talked about that, maybe we didn't. But Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17 underscore the fact that everything has been created by God. Not just the things that we see and touch and smell and taste here on this earth, but even those things on a heavenly basis have been created by God. Look with me, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Again, it's Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Talking about Jesus Christ, the Savior there, and the fact that, that through him all things have been created. It echoes what we read over in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being. In the beginning was God, because that's he's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. So that's the only being that existed in the beginning, whenever you want to say in the beginning would be. Um, and that goes back to Genesis chapter 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when time began, when anything came into existence, all that was present there at that moment in time would have been God. There's no indication there that any other being was in existence or that God had any other heavenly host with him at all time periods and, and, and from the beginning that all angels existed or that from the beginning all spiritual beings existed or from the beginning that the heavenly host was there with God. There's no phrase whatsoever like that in the scriptures. In fact, it's just the opposite. Colossians 1 verses 15 through 17, as we just read, says that in the, from the beginning or in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, when Christ was there as the instrumentality of God, creating and being part of that creation of things, that God created both the things on the heavens and in the earth. And so what that comprises is everything. So there would be a creation there of God, by God, of everything that is now in existence. And so you cannot deny that the fact that God was the almighty creator of all things but not just that the, he was the almighty creator of, of all things that we see. We think physical a lot of times when we think of creation, right? Because that's what we see and feel and touch. And, but the, the scriptures point to the fact that he was the creator of everything, both spiritual and physical. Or as Paul wrote to Colossians, the visible and the invisible. Those things which we can see and those things which we cannot see. Of course, it echoes when we talk about the, our fight, that that battle that we wage against the spiritual entities, right? Those spiritual powers, the principalities, those things which are seen, those things which are unseen. It's the same thing. God created it all. So there's got to be a further explanation. And to dive a little bit deeper into all this, uh, it takes a lot more time with regard to a lot of uh, the arguments with regard to the existence of evil, the, the problem of pain and suffering, all those things derive from this very beginning of this argument of, of creation by God of everything. And atheists love to kind of throw it out out there as, as a proof against God, in fact. But the scriptures really point against that. Everything that was created by God from the beginning, both visible and invisible, was what? It was good. It was good. In fact, the scriptural basis says that everything was very good when God finished the creation there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see that concept of God creating everything. And again, don't just think about the trees and the flowers and the grass and, and all those things around us that we can see, but remember the creation by God includes everything. Now, when did it exactly take, uh, count or, or take place? Uh, when, did he, when did he create the angels? That's a good question. 
It's a very good question. Uh, because when you see the creation account given to us in Genesis chapter 1, there's not a, you know, on the first day of creation, God created the angels. You know, it doesn't say anything about that. Or he created the spirits. You know, you don't see that there, do you? But what you do see is that there was a beginning of creation there. And if you really concentrate in Genesis, Genesis is talking about the creation account, by the way, of the world, not of those things which may be invisible. So again, we may be in a Deuteronomy 29, 29 situation here where we may not know every answer to every question of when exactly did God create the angels. But we do know there are multiple passages of scriptures that talk about the fact that the angels actually were there when the creation of the world occurred. Look at Psalm chapter 148 with me real quick. I think it's interesting to look at this because you'll see that the heavenly host was there, was part of, or was there during the beginning of the creations of the, the earth. And uh, Psalms 148 verse 2, or you just start in verse 1. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise Him in the highest. Verse 2. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. So at some point in time, obviously we see here, they were created. Who was created? Everything here. His angels, all the hosts, the sun and the moon, the stars of light, the highest heavens, the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And then you go on to see uh, the idea in Job chapter 38. Job 38. And this is really the one I was thinking about a second ago. Where Job, and of course this is going to be in the middle of a conversation uh, with regard to uh, God speaking to Job. And I, of course, I love these accounts here because Job's pretty much calling out Job. God is calling out Job of saying, hey, you don't know everything. <laughs> you, you got all these questions, and that's. And I think God's thinking that's okay, but listen to me, and this is why you listen to me. And 38 kind of goes in there talking about asking these questions that Job has no clue about. Uh, he did not have this knowledge. He did not have this understanding. But Job 38, verses 4 through 7, he, he asked Job, this is God asking Job the question, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know, or, or who stretched the line on it? On, on what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And of course, there that phrase, sons of God, by the way, is translated multiple different ways, but a lot of times would refer to the heavenly hosts. Could, return, could refer to the heavenly host. The idea that Job, or being that God is conveying to Job here, of course, is Job is insignificant when it comes to his knowledge. Uh, he's very, um, he's lacking knowledge and understanding of really the overall big picture of things. And a lot of times we fall in the same place, right? Um, we don't understand the big picture sometimes. But here, of course, Job, uh, God is quickly pointing out to Job, you don't have an understanding. You weren't around when all these things were even laid and the foundations of the world were brought about. But it says here, the sons of God were. They shouted for joy when those foundations on that cornerstone was laid. Now, again, you can take that different ways, and I don't want to get into multiple different interpretations possibly there of Job 38, verse 7. Uh, but the argument usually is made is that the angels and the heavenly hosts and all those beings, of course, were created by God from the beginning. 
at some point in time, and obviously we know they occurred before the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3. Why do we know that? Well, because Satan shows up in the garden. And we know that he had to have been created before that time period for him to then, of course, make the choice to, to not be obedient and not follow after God and begin the temptations uh, and begin to fight against God in these battles and the warfare that we have even going on today. That Satan began those things after he was created and ultimately even after Adam and Eve was created. So how quickly did it occur? We don't know necessarily, uh, but we do see that it did occur and there's no way that the scriptures would argue or say anything contrary to that. There's no bottom line with regard to Satan being created. That there's no scriptural evidence whatsoever of Satan being an eternal being. In fact, the, the scriptures argue right against that. We'll get to some later passages and talking about some of the traits of Satan. But when you look at who Satan is and what he's able to do, there is an obvious confinement or control or um, deliberate ability of God to limit what Satan can do. Well, if, if God and Satan are equal, how would there be any limitation? I'll just ask you that. There wouldn't be. There wouldn't be. But the scriptures show us that there is limitation, that God, when Job is being tempted, he limits Satan of what he's able to do. He tells him, you, you, can, you can touch his family, you can do things, but you, you cannot kill him. You cannot kill him. Puts that limitation there with regard to what Satan's able to do. So you'll see there's some confinements there. Uh, but again, what's found in the Bible is incontrovertible proof that God created all things, all things, both on heaven and on earth, they were created. This would necessarily uh, include all spiritual beings of which we read about in the Bible, that God created the angels, which we will talk about in subsequent lesson or lessons probably, uh, when you think about being created. Angels were created, uh, the heavenly host, uh, the different, um, the seraphim, the... the uh, all the different types of what we call angels. We'll get into that discussion. But the, the heavenly hosts were all created. Everything was created, both on heaven and on earth, according to the Scripture. And that would mean necessarily that Satan is a created being. Satan is a created being. Uh, there's no proof otherwise. And all the, the ones, the arguments that are made about him being eternal are, are contradicted by what the Bible itself says. Now, where did he come from also, I think, gets into this about the creation of of Satan. Did he create him as being an evil being? I mean, did God create evil? Did God do this? Well, I think when you look at the scriptures, uh, since, since Satan's not deity, or he's not eternal, you know, many then wonder about God creating him uh, as being evil. As I said before, atheists sometimes would use this as arguments against the existence of God and, and try to say that this doesn't make logical sense with regard to the the, the dual existence of both an evil and a, and a good being. And so you'll see those arguments thrown out there sometimes uh, with regard to that. Uh, but what is certain when you look at this, that the proof of, or the, or really the argument, this argument about God uh, creating him as evil falls short when Scripture is examined and we see that the nature of God being explained by Scriptures about who God is and what God is able to do. And uh, the limitation on God comes from himself. God is all good. And so what you will see in the scriptures is that ultimately uh, the scriptures tell us that God did not create Satan as being evil. He did create him. 
But just like anybody else, he had free will, and he chose to uh, take something else, another course of action in his life. So let's look at this real quickly if we can. When you look at the scriptures and look at the the concept of creating Satan, uh, you've got to go back to some of the points that are made about who God is and what his nature is and what his characteristics and personality is. So first of all, uh, it's good for us to point out that God has no sin, and ultimately, those with sin are separated from his presence. Over in Isaiah chapter 59, it's a scripture that we commonly use with regard to the separation of God and uh, sin. But Isaiah 59 talks about the fact that as Christians or as anybody, as mankind, that God is not joined together with sin. It said in uh, Psalm 59 verses 1 through 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so the point's usually made here, and I think rightfully so, that sin causes a separation between you and God. Now there is a spiritual separation that occurs there. There is such a a schism there between your spiritual life and the, the life that God wants us to have, And that life of God, that sin, whenever you embrace it or whenever you undertake it, whenever you commit it, uh, that sin causes a separation between you and God. That separation can only be overcome, we know, by the sacrifice and a willing and repentant heart toward God. In the Old Testament, you dealt with it with a sacrificial sacrifice, right? God provided those things in the Old Testament so that you would have a yearly sacrifice and you'd also have a pretty regular sacrifice of, of different things at different times and different uh, different quantities. But those were always commanded so that they would be a, a repentant, heartfelt, contrition-type sacrifice made to God to atone for those sacrifices. And then ultimately, we know in the New Testament, as the New Covenant came about, that the Old Testament wasn't quite good enough to wash it away. It passed it over. It allowed it to be covered up. It allowed it to uh, be reconciled temporarily, if you want to say so to speak. Uh, where the individuals were not fully forgiven. Why? Because that sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Read Hebrews 9 and 10. You'll get a much better description than I can do myself. But the Hebrew writer there enumerates the fact that the blood of goats and and bulls is just not enough. It's not enough for the forgiveness of sins. It required a more perfect sacrifice. And that's why you see in the New Testament, Christ coming along as the perfect Lamb of God, and that he brought about that that justification through the atonement because he offered his blood on our behalf. So I say all those things is because that's how sin is overcome. The schism that, uh, that takes place in our lives uh, can only be resolved when the blood of Christ flows within the gap there, fills it in for us so that we are then reunited and filled back full and reunited with God and reconciled with him. That blood cleanses, that blood heals, that, that blood fixes the schism that was brought by sin. And so what you see is God can't be a part of that. He can't be a part of sin. He can be part, and he was a very large part, obviously, with regard to the plan of salvation to try and fix that problem that man brought in. But God can't be around sin. So therefore, God cannot create sin. That makes sense. You can't create that which you cannot be a part of. Uh, God is not a part of those things. Uh, in, In the legal field... If you bring about something and someone else does it, you're what you call a co-conspirator. You are an accomplice. One of those two terms are usually used about your actions and the things that you, are, you have done 
to help bring about that criminal action. Well, God is not an accomplice with regard to sin. God is not a co-conspirator of bringing sin into this world. He's not part of it. Uh, God is separated from those things. And multiple passages throughout the Bible uh, contain uh, illustrations and, and points to show that God will not have anything to do with evil. Listen to a couple of these. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Uh, his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells in you. First John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. James chapter 1, verses 13 and verse 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, and with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, not only does God not associate with evil, but all that he created was good. He cannot be a part of of those things which are wicked. He cannot be a part of those things which involve sin. That's why it's so important with regard to his instructions to the early church. You purge those things from among you. Why? Because if you allow sin among the midst, you allow leaven to come into your church, you're going to leaven everyone, everything. You cannot take parts it out. God cannot be a part of sin, so he encourages us to make sure and maintain that out, uh, and maintain the purity of the Lord's church. He, may, he, he implores us to remain pure in our own lives because He wants to be a part of us. He wants to be with us. He wants to be joined together with us. And so all those concepts kind of come together with regard to the nature of God and seeing that God didn't create Satan as evil. He cannot. He could not. Uh, because He has nothing to do with evil. He turns His back on evil. You want, to, you want to know why there was a moment there on the cross where God turned his back on his only son? There's only one reason, one way that God would ever have turned his back ultimately on Jesus. And that's because Jesus bore the sins of the world on the cross that day. So there was a moment there where God turned his back on his only begotten son. And that's because of the idea of sin. If God hates sin that much... Why would he ever create a being that was sin? That was going to bring nothing but wickedness. That was going to bring nothing but deceit in the world. Well, he would not have done those things. He would not have created someone who was sinful. He would not have created someone who was evil from the very beginning. So he would not have created him as being evil. Now again, as you think about this, this again, I think I've already said this. As God looked back on his creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, all that he created there, he stepped back and said, all was very good. So we know at that point in time when God created everything, that when he looked back at his creation, that there was nothing bad about it until man made bad decisions. And that kind of goes to the idea of, with regard to the, uh, Satan being a fallen angel, that he is very likely what we would call a fallen angel. Again, now, let me tell you, this phrase is not in the Bible, by the way. Okay, you try to look through your Bible and see fallen angel, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. It's a term we've kind of made up as a descriptive term as to who Satan is. Okay, there's no fallen angel uh, with regard to the description of Satan in God's Word. 
Uh, you could argue, and we'll get to Ezekiel, that there's some the descriptions there about the fallen star there, uh, that some people try to say that's Satan. I think it's a fallacy. I don't think it's a good argument. Uh, but there's nowhere in Scripture Satan's ever called a fallen angel. And there's nowhere in Scripture that any anyone or the term is even referred to as being a fallen angel. There are verses, we'll talk about it, that talk about angels giving up or to, to making decisions which cause them to be cast down from heaven. So there you kind of see the concept of fallen angel, right? We think of heavens being up in the sky and, you know, cast down, you're going down. Again, that's a, a very physical description overlaid on a, a spiritual concept for us to try and understand and comprehend. But what the scriptures do point out is that there is incredible amount of, of scriptural evidence to show that Satan is likely a fallen angel. The, the scriptures paint a picture of that Satan was once uh, numbered with the hosts of heaven, that he sinned against God and was cast out of God's present presence, and that ultimately he would have assumed, and he did assume, the leadership of all those who were unrighteous and turned their backs on God. That's kind of the general broad overstatement and description uh, of what Satan has done and where Satan stands today. It's not just the most logical explanation, but it's really the one with the most uh, biblical evidence for support. There are a few questions that may not be answered as you think about the fall of Satan. What exactly did he turn his back on? Uh, what did he disobey God about? Uh, what was the, the confrontation, so to speak, that Satan said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. What did he do to actually uh, revolt against God? We don't necessarily know all the details, uh, but the scriptures do allude to the fact that this did occur and that uh, more than likely that the, these angels who sinned and turned their backs on God uh, were cast out of heaven because of their decisions and ultimately uh, will be punished in the end just as you or I will be punished uh, for our decisions that we have made. And again, I want to go back before we d dive into this too much is that what this points out more than anything is that all of God's creation... All of those who were created by God were not created as robots. As humans, we are not robots. We make our decisions. God does not force us to make a decision, right? It's called, we call it free moral agency. Uh, but the, the idea that we are able to make a determination in our minds and by our actions of what we want to do and what we want to follow. You know, if we want to commit adultery on our spouse, that's our decision, Right? That's not something that we are programmed to do necessarily or we are forced to do. It's a decision that we make. If we want to, again, on the flip side, if we want to obey God, if we want to remain faithful and true to our spouse, if we want to do what God wants us to do in our lives and obey Him with regard to worship or with regard to just daily living and, and, and spiritual matters, that's our decision. God is not programming or making us to do anything. And I think with the scriptures that has to do with angels and these I keep calling them angels, but a lot of times they don't always call them angels. They call them just uh, spiritual beings or, you know, um, in this case, um, and there's different words and used in the scriptures that talk about Satan. Uh, but they had a decision. God did not create even angels themselves as being robots. And I think that's interesting to think about because it's not something we always think about, I don't think. A lot of times in our minds, I believe we've got it stuck that angels were even created and that, that all of them, when they were created, it was just ingrained inside of them that they must prostrate themselves and worship or they must follow after the commandments, that, that, that they're just kind of sitting around the throne of God just constantly every day worshiping God and, and they really don't have any choice in the matter. That's just what they were created to do. And in fact, what the scriptures 
point out for us is the fact that even spiritual beings, those beings that we cannot see, still have a choice. And the scriptures kind of unfold multiple proofs and examples of what those choices were. And to me, uh, you see, I believe the, the reason why the damnation that would be incurred by those who are angelic beings could be perceived as being even greater than that judgment against us. Why? I would say the reason is because they have seen God. They're not just living by faith. You understand that, right? We live by faith, not by sight, right? I mean, that's, that's the concept that we have. And that's what Hebrews talks about as you get into the whole hall of faith is the fact that we, we walk by faith and not by sight, right? Because we are relying on things that we have never seen, that we've never touched. They are relying upon a belief that is set in action, that faithful living that we have. That's what we live by. But you see, once you have seen the unseen, it's no longer faith. As a side note, that's why when you talk about faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. You know why? Because love never ends. Faith and hope both end, right? When you think about spiritually speaking, faith's going to end. Why? Because we're going to see in the end. We're going to ultimately see our God. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to be prostrating before the throne of God. Whether we have lived a good life or not, we will be bowing before the throne of God saying, You are God. You are God. And even if you are thrown in eternal damnation, you're going to acknowledge who God is. You're going to see God. You're going to have to, to be forced to reckon with what has been a re- becomes a reality in the end. Hope is very similar too. Hope is those things which we have not attained yet, right? And so the idea of we have hope for eternal life. We have hope for this. We have hope for that. Well, hope goes away when those things are attained. Or when you get to that point and they cannot be attained. Hope's gone. You have no more hope, right? Have you ever heard that phrase that we just, we've lost all hope? Well, why have you lost hope? It's because you've gotten to a point of time or a point in your life where you've either attained it or more than likely that phrase is used whenever you have not attained it and you've got a reality and a realization there that you will not be able to attain it. So hope is gone. All you got is faith. I mean, all you got is love in the end. And that's why I think Paul says in Corinthians that faith, hope, and love, and love is the greatest of all these. Why? Love never fails. Love never ends. Love never goes away. I'm not just talking about a marriage, which, by the way, 1 Corinthians is not talking about marriage more than likely. It's talking about just the concept of love. And love never ends. Love never fails. Love never goes away. Love is always there. God is love. It's always there. So, The idea of angels turning their back on God after being created by Him in the heavenly hosts, being up there in the throne of God, being there before Him. You read Job chapter 1, you see the idea that the angels, the angelic, the heavenly hosts are there around the throne of God, and then they turn their backs on Him. You can kind of see why the judgment that they would incur would probably be pretty bad because they have no excuse whatsoever. I'm not saying we have an excuse, but they definitely have no excuse. Because they've seen that, that they've been there and they've done that. So what you see in the scriptures, though, is ultimately the idea of angels turning their backs on God, Satan joining in their punishment, joining them and, and described uh, in the scriptures as being uh, their leader, so to speak, in multiple scriptures. Listen to these scriptures real quickly. I've got about five of them to, to read off to you here. But you see in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds 
under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Yes. That's right. There, there is a confinement, so to speak, of, of Satan. And these scriptures really point out that it's not, just, it's not just Satan. The same thing affects the others that were cast down as well. There is a restriction placed upon them. And again, I think exerting the fact that God has ultimate power, Satan does not. Uh, you're right. The, the fact that there is a limitation, so to speak, of Satan. That also kind of goes away, by the way, of uh, why God says through Paul, of course, in Corinthians, that we will not be tempted beyond that which we are able to withstand, with, with, with beyond that which we're able to deal with in our lives. Uh, and there, again, is a limitation. I mean, obviously, if Satan had his way, I believe he would just come in like a, a banshee and just take over our lives and destroy everything because he knows that, that would destroy us. Uh, he's not able to do that. Um, Revelation 12, verse 9, this great figurative language here talking about Satan, but... Uh, I think it's very apt and descriptive uh, with other scriptures. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And uh, Job, no, Matthew chapter 25, verse 44, 41. Uh, then he will also say to those on his left, remember this, this is the kind of the dividing of the, the faithful and not faithful there. He'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. Not a new convert. And again, we're talking about qualifications here for those leading the Lord's church. Uh, Paul says, not, not to be a new convert, so that we will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The idea here is, is that Satan left his proper abode. And you saw that referred to really over in the scriptures that uh, in, in Jude verse 6, that they had abandoned their proper abode is the version that I read. Uh, that they left those that place where they had been properly created, properly placed, uh, left to be a part of, and they left that. Why? We don't necessarily know the exact reason why. But we do know the fact here that they made that choice, and they sinned. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 talks about the fact that God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And so angels, just like humanity, have that free moral agency, really. Uh, there is a, a concept that they have a decision. They have the choices that they can make in their lives. And they made their choice. And a group of angels left that proper abode because they made those poor choices in following after those things which were not accordance with God's word. And that's what really introduced and began the, the, the idea and concept of sin, and I think it's interesting to think about. We usually equate the fall of humanity, of course, with what Adam and Eve, right? That's what we usually go for, right? The fall of mankind or the, the beginning of sin. When in reality, if you want to get to it, the, the really the fall of mankind really began even before mankind's fall because the angels and themselves sinned. Now, does that mean that it would have directly impacted us on earth? Probably not necessarily. 
because mankind still could have made the decision to remain faithful, true, and obedient to God. We know ultimately from the scriptures they did not make that choice. And in Genesis chapter 3, you see there the fact that Eve made that beginning choice and then Adam decided to follow along with her. And they, they decided to contradict and go against those things which God wanted. It was their decision. Just like all of us have the decision every day to decide what we're going to do. They had that same decision. But the fall really began with the first ones who turned their backs on God. And in fact, spiritually, and the invisible, the angels did. And that's what provoked ultimately God. He's going to have to create hell. Have you ever thought of that? I think we may have mentioned that before. Hell wasn't something that just always was around. God created hell as punishment for the angels and for those who fail and decided not to obey. And that's why he equates ultimately those of us who make the bad decisions, who, who do not follow after his commandments, that we will follow into the same condemnation that we will have uh, in Matthew 25, depart from me accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. If we don't comply, if we don't obey, if we don't truly love God, right? Because God says, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If we don't truly show those things in our lives, guess what we incur? We incur the same judgment and the wrath which was prepared, which was created, which was made exclusively for the devil and his angels. The enemy of the camp wants to spread nothing but dissension. He wants to spread sin. He wants to bring all these things into play. Why? Because he wants us to join him in the depths of hell instead of in the true eternal life found in our home in heaven. We'll pick up here probably in two weeks because I'll be at Last of Leaders next week. Thank you so much for your kind attention this morning.